charging a man around here with murders like handing out speeding tickets at the Indy 500. Welcome, everybody, to episode number 34 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lindrum. I'm Jack Grandstaff. And oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, I can already tell you guys, you can already see from the title of this episode what this episode is going to be about. And even if you were to not see the title, you can all probably take a wild guess as to what the topic of this episode would be, the main topic. There is nothing else that must be talked about right now. This one, first and foremost, this is a story that is important to a lot of us, to including myself and Jacob and others who grew up in this generation, something that defined pretty much our entire generation. And even though we had a feeling how it was going to end, watching it finally come to a conclusion or come start to come to a conclusion, it's not over yet, but it will be soon, is a very strange feeling for many, very, many, many reasons. And we will expand upon those, of course, when we get to the main topic. But for right now, just to get before we get to the big cheese of this episode, we've got to focus on a couple of other stories first. One story in particular that I saw this. And I thought this was going to become the big story in conservative media, and I think it should have until, of course, bigger events happened over the weekend. But this ties back to a previous episode we did when we talked about white replacement theory, this the idea that there is a coordinated effort by the left to replace white Americans in particular by importing immigrants and refugees and what have you, illegal aliens. And we mentioned in that episode, Jacob, you made the comparison in that episode where you compared of the white replacement advocates on the left to Holocaust deniers, who are, of course, our anti-Semites who, as the title suggests, they don't believe the Holocaust happened, but they then turn around and suggest that it should have happened. They're like, oh, I, it didn't happen, but we, it would have been a great thing if it did happen, right? Right, right, correct. A lot of these people who claim that this is just a white supremacist myth, they deny that it's happening, but then whenever it, you actually have evidence of it happening, they come out and celebrate it. Exactly. And that basically happened. They dropped the first part of that, the whole we're going to pretend it isn't happening. They completely dropped that facade with the release of the latest U.S. census data, which, of course, is going to play a part in the redistricting of congressional and legislative lines for the 2022 elections. But it showed that literally for the first time in American history, since the census first started being recorded in 1790, the white population, the Caucasian self-described, you know, non-Hispanic, non-Asian, non-African-American, what have you, white population in the United States declined for the first time in our history, declined by about 5 million total white Americans, which is a percentage wise, that's not a lot, but that is still a very staggering number, especially when you consider certain geographical areas where it is located, most likely the Rust Belt and other regions like that. And this news, of course, was met with nothing but absolute delight from the left. And here's just one example from CNN. This is a a black commentator named Bakari Sellers, author of a book called My Vanishing Country. Gee, I'm sure there's no bias there whatsoever. <laughs> right now, Stephen Miller and Donald Trump are in Mar-a-Lago and they're throwing up because this is not the America they want to see. And then they go over to Anna Navarro, who uh, is another one they keep touting as a conservative, a token conservative at CNN. You know, they keep saying, oh, Republican strategist Anna Navarro, even though she literally hasn't been a Republican since, I think, 2008. Lincoln Project type. And this is what she had to say. I was at the White House the other day, and guess who's got Stephen Miller's old <laughs> office? Her name is Susan Rice, and she's Sue one of Pete. us. And guess who is in Ivanka Trump's old office? Julie Rodriguez, Who? she is Cesar Chavez's oh, I love Julie. granddaughter. Gee, I hope nobody tells um, Anna over here how Cesar Chavez felt about illegal aliens. You know, that would really uh, <laughs> that would really bring her world come crashing down. But when you listen to the, the wording that she uses, she says she's one of us. 
she obviously this is these elites who are non-white they don't identify themselves with the american nation this this should send up red flags to anybody who loves america that you've got these people who are identifying with their skin color rather than the nation as a whole exactly and that draws us back to another commentator who reacted similarly another just non-Republican Republican, Jennifer Rubin, one of the token conservatives, never Trumper type, who basically became a leftist in every way possible uh, just to oppose Trump. She tweeted with a link to an article on this news saying, quote, a more diverse, more inclusive society. This is fabulous news. Ugh, fabulous. I guess she's, she's a lesbian now. Now we need to prevent minority white rule, she says. So again, this draws me back to a question I asked in that white replacement episode. And you ask a leftist this. You ask someone on the left about this love of diversity, even before the census data came out. You ask them, what is the inherent automatically attributable value to diversity what is so good about diversity which really just means less white people what is good about it what value does it bring they can never answer the question they will just call you a racist they'll just say oh of course it's good because it's good you know it's a self-attributable good and it really is it, it proves they have they're not even trying to mask what their end goal is here or that we can speculate as to what their motivations are but we know what the goal is well they don't want to assimilate into the american nation they want to still cling to their identities that they came with when they immigrated here and so this is they see this as the easiest way to do that so to become a nation of minorities in which you wouldn't be a nation you would basically just be an empire yeah it just it really is in the era of the biden regime where black lives matter flags and the the progress flag as it's called are being flown over our embassies before the embassies are being taken over by invading forces that is it really just shows that everything is on the table and they can continue beating around the bush for what their end goal is here but it's not going to be pretty the, it, again this news may be buried for a while by bigger developments happening on the world stage right now and we will come to that in just a little bit but it ties in it continues the latest trend of where they have been going on immigration. And again, recent events have also kind of uh, expedited those arguments. And in fact, the Washington Times says that the USCIS, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, expects to receive as many as 150,000 asylum cases per year, but leaves open the possibility of as many as 300,000 per year. The current workload is about 80,000 to 100,000. You can be willing to bet they were going to push for this even before everything that happened in Afghanistan ultimately happened over the weekend. This was always their plan. Well, we've talked a lot on The Right Take about the phenomenon known as critical race theory in developing schools. And whereas beforehand, this was mainly just an academic topic. It was studied in law schools, whereas now it's become they've broken it down, even uh, introduced it to kindergartners to teach kindergartners about what it means to live in an oppressive white nation like the United States. But one of the places where this has taken off really quickly is private schools, especially elite private schools. The New York Times did a study on Brearley, Dalton, and Grace Episcopal. But it turns out there's more than just an ideological incentive behind all of this. It's these diversity, equity, and inclusion courses that these schools go through. Some people call it diversity, inclusion, and equity, which of course makes the acronym DIE, <laughs> which is literally causing our country to die. Appropriate. So the Washington Free Beacon did an expose on this. A top diversity consultancy has ties to every single level of the private school accreditation process. The Glasgow Group, whose founder, Rodney Glasgow, once likened critics of diversity work to the Capitol Riders, consists entirely of consultants with posts at the National Association of Independent Schools and its approved accreditors. 
The association requires those accreditors to enforce social justice ideology in private schools, where members of the Glasgow Group double as full-time employees given the 12-person firm a say in the education of hundreds of thousands of students. As their education has been shaped by the Glasgow Group's consultants, diversity professionals have procured more and more power and more and more money. Uh, you got this consultant group that consults for these schools and asks, you know, the schools will hire them to do a diversity audit. And this is how they, they point out in the article that they've been doing. Most of this money has come from these equity audit, audits, which used to be called diversity audits. Well, so what they do, so these, these schools, they'll ask for an audit. And the reason they ask for an audit is because they need these equity audits in order to pass the accreditation process. And of course, who sits on the accreditation boards? None other but the members of the Glasgow Group. The article goes on, the growth of DEI bureaucracy, the diversity, equity, and inclusion bureaucracy has alienated parents who say their kids' schools have become obsessed with racial identity, which is they reference the New York Times study that we went over recently. The nation's top private schools have all gone woke simultaneously, transformed by race-conscious pedagogy. Families who seek an escape hatch often can't find one. Several parents told the Free Beacon last month because all the, school, all the best schools are beholden to the same accreditors and use the same consultants. So these accreditors, they don't, uh, they don't look at the, like, the small, little, insignificant private Christian school. These are the top-notch, these are the top Episcopal schools that the nation's elite will send their kids to. And then in which case, they'll pay more for the, these kids' education 12 than most people pay for tuition. In some cases, they even employ the same administrators. The Glasgow Group's consultants tend to cycle through a small set of schools in the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast, funneling their colleagues into whatever post they just left. At St. Andrew's Episcopal School in Maryland, for example, the past two directors of diversity were both members of the Glasgow Group. Having molded an entire school system in their image, DEI practitioners can move freely within it, profiting at every step of the journey. Each of the group's 12 consultants has ties to the National Association for Independent Schools' various diversity conferences, which set the tone for DEI programming in private schools. Eleven are faculty members of the Student Diversity Leadership Conference shared by, chaired by Glasgow since 2004. Three have presented at the People of Color Conference. What, what, wait, wait a minute. People of Color Conference? So so I guess it's okay if we have a white people conference, huh? Yeah, no. I, didn't you get the memo that that's the one, that's the one color that's not allowed in this new multiracial, in this new uh, multicultural society we have? I mean, it's, it's just blatantly obvious. Like, it's, it's baffling to me that so many white people are just living in their little bubble. Like, you've got a People of Color Conference on national television. You have pundits touting the fact that we're going to become a nation of color. Basically, you're throwing it in your – they don't even have to hide it anymore. It's basically in your face. Hey, white people, we're going to make you a minority, and there's nothing you can do about it. But anyway, uh, three have presented at the People of Color Conference, which Glasgow helped organize for over a decade. The events bring thousands of students and administrators together from the nation's top independent schools, including those who set and enforce accreditation standards. These conferences have enshrined racial sectarianism at the highest level of private school governance. One presentation, delivered by the Glasgow Group's Yvonne Adams and Tony Graves-Williamson, was titled Black Girl Magic, Working with White Women. The PowerPoint slides quote Robin D'Angelo on white women's tears and end by advertising the Glasgow Group services. Oh, of course they do. Of course they make they do. it sound like it's such a struggle to have to work with white people. Race-based affinity groups are a staple of such conferences. Among the 10 that will be featured at the 2021 People of Color Conference are Latinx, Transracially Adopted, and White European Awareness and Accountability. Wait, transracial is actually a thing now? Like, Transracially adopted. So I, these are kids who have been adopted by parents who are not of their same race. Oh, okay. So, I, I thought they were about to finally create an excuse for the Sean Kings and Rachel Dolls also <laughs> the world. <laughs> yeah, that, that's next. Well, once white people become a minority, then they will carve out a little exclusion for people. They'll have to, to start, you know, 
coloring their skin dark and putting on like full-fledged makeup and adopting these stereotypical haircuts to look like they're not people they're well, not white this people. has actually gone on in brazil because we've our our black intelligentsia has uh, has exported this black grievance culture to brazil and so now you have a lot of white people in brazil that try to dye their skin darker so they can get into universities Oh, this sort of grief. racialism tends to trickle down to the regional accrediting bodies, which are themselves populated by members of the Glasgow group. John Gentile, whom the group advertises as a specialist in white identity development. Other accrediting bodies are represented on the Glasgow group's advisory board, the webpage for which was made private after the Free Beacon purchased a webinar from the consultancy. Three members of the board, Jaylene Spain Thomas, Bart Griffith, and Antonio Viva, have ties to the association's approved accreditors in Virginia, Maryland, and New England, respectively, states that require schools to promote DEI. These ties mean that the Glasgow Group is effectively creating demand for its own services. Its consultants are part of the accreditation regime that mandates diversity, equity, and inclusion in private schools. And who better to navigate those mandates than the people who helped craft them? So on the accreditation boards, you have people who work for the Glasgow Group. They demand that schools provide diversity, equity, and inclusion courses to their teachers, to their staff. And, of course, if you're the school and you want to get accredited, who better to ask for the audit and to pay for this audit than the company for which those accreditors work? So they, you, have, you have individuals who are accreditors who also work for the consultancy. So the consultants come in and they do their audit. You pay the consultancy a very hefty sum to do this audit. And then the accreditors who work for the auditing company say, okay, you're good. They give you the stamp of approval. And then as a result, you have to put all these rich white kids who come to your school through uh, self-deprecating training to teach them to hate themselves for being white. Compounding the demand for DEI is the sense of grievance the consultants promote. After students at elite private schools began airing anonymous accusations of racism on social media, the Glasgow Group, get this, this is, this is so insidious. The Glasgow Group put out a guide for how to handle the posts. So you have certain private schools who have maybe 5% black population. These black students who resent being minorities at these elite schools put out grievances on Twitter. And the Glasgow Group puts out a guide for how to handle the post. So a white person's knee-jerk reaction is going to be to defend themselves. If you're slapped in the face, you're accused of racism. I mean, you're not a racist. Your natural knee-jerk reaction is to defend yourself and the school that you attended. So this Glasgow Group puts out, they preempt this by putting out a guide for how to handle the post, to teach these white people how to handle being attacked. And in this uh, guide, they said, even if your school is not experienced in social media posts, they tell them that nonetheless, they should go ahead and send out a letter acknowledging that other schools have received such posts and that your school is not exempt from the experiences outlined in those posts and that you should invite alums as well as current students and families to share their stories proactively. So if your school isn't among the schools that has been receiving abuse, you should send out a letter asking for abuse. Like where we know that we're not exempt from racism. So if you're an alum of the school or a current student, will you please let us know if you've experienced any kind of slight in the past? And lecture course, us harder. We want to be lectured. And of course, every person experiences slight at some point. You know, you may come across a coworker who's just having a bad day and they snap at you. Well, if you happen to be a minority and you remember that happening from five years ago, then now all of a sudden, oh, I wonder if it was because I'm black and they're white. That's why. They, and then so then you put out a grievance. I've experienced racism in this school and now it's the job of that white person person who snapped at you who doesn't even remember it to acknowledge the fact that they were racist 
The more private schools embrace DEI, the more jobs there are for DEI practitioners at private schools. That has given members of the Glasgow Group a steady source of employment beyond consulting work. Each consultant is also a full-time private school administrator, in some cases at the very schools that are hiring the consultancy. Now, you may think of a, a private school administrator. So is that the principals of these schools? No, 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 no. These schools, as part of their requirement to operate DEI, they have to hire a bunch of administrators. So, for instance... Yvonne Adams, for example, is the director of the Equity and Inclusion at St. Stephen's Episcopal School, which in 2019 brought in the Glasgow Group for a diversity audit. This dual employment appears to have created a kind of patronage network around the consultancy, whose members often take jobs at their colleagues' current or former schools. After Glasgow left his post, the, the founder, the, the man, not the group, after Glasgow left his post as director of diversity and community at Worcester Academy in 2012, the school hired the Glasgow Group's Diane Nichols as its director of diversity and student leadership. Glasgow would go on to serve as St. Andrew's Episcopal School's chief diversity officer until 2020, when he was succeeded by the Glasgow Group's Lorraine Martin as Handley. She, in turn, has been the director of diversity at Indian Creek School from 2003 to 2017, during which time Indian Creek hired another Glasgow Group consultant. At all told, half the consultants have at least one point of institutional overlap outside the consultancy. Glasgow's march through the institutions hasn't just given colleagues jobs, it's also given him a potent source of recruits. Gentile, the consultant who specializes in white identity, first met Glasgow at a high school student as a high school student at the Student Diversity Leadership Conference, which Glasgow co-chaired. This is how woke bureaucracy reproduces itself in America's private schools. Consultants infiltrate the institutions that determine what students learn and from whom they learn it. Having been shaped by those institutions, students come to admire the consultants and some may even join them. So they set up the Student Diversity Leadership Conference two decades ago. And so through that student diversity leadership conference, they're able to recruit high school students who will then become consultants and will then become accreditors. And eventually they're able to move from what was once just a fringe ideology and a fringe group like two decades ago into what is now mainstream. And this is the thing. People last summer, they were very baffled at how quickly the United States had gone from what they thought was a perfectly normal country because they didn't notice any of this in 2019 to what is essentially a, Ma a racial Maoist society in which white people have to walk on eggshells. They're not given the same opportunities that they had in 2018 and 2019, and non-white people are moved to the front of the line in what is essentially becoming a racial caste system. And they're wondering how in the world did we, did we, did we, and they're wondering how in the world did we come to this? Well, we came to this because they laid the groundwork by creating these people of color conferences back in the early 2000s, by creating these student, you know, diversity leadership institutes and conferences for students back in the early 2000s. Well, now those students are in their 30s and now they see this is their time to shine. This is their time to completely take over and put themselves at the top of the racial hierarchy, even if they happen to be white. And of course, Robin D'Angelo opens up a door for white people who want to still be elites. You know, you don't, it's not, they're not saying if you're white, you can't be an elite. You just have to adopt the racial grievance that all these non-white people have embraced. This is just a week of bad news. In case you guys needed any more bad news to make you guys feel better about the current state of affairs in our country, we might as well just go ahead and move on to the kind of bad news that at the very least has some silver linings to it. Although it is still unquestionably a disaster in every sense of the word. It is a failure. It's a tragedy. It's a debacle. It's whatever you want to call it. Catastrophe. We have to talk about the coming end of the war in Afghanistan. And it is ending in a way that we never previously thought imaginable. Quite a few people could have predicted this. They still could not have imagined that it would get this bad. So as we mentioned in a previous episode, 
In February of 2020, the Trump administration ultimately managed to broker a peace agreement between the Afghan government and the Taliban, which, among other things, would call for a complete withdrawal of American forces by May the 1st, 2021. Of course, when Joe Biden came in, being the extremely small, petty little man he is with a massive ego to go with it, he could not stand the thought of continuing the exact same thing that Trump was doing. He had to try to take control of this historic achievement of the Trump administration, negotiating the end of the longest war in our history, and make it his own. And to that end, he arbitrarily extended the withdrawal deadline to September 11th for a purely symbolic 20th anniversary of 9-11. You know, you can imagine the speech he would give on that day. It's a new era. You know, we're turning the page, all the politician liners. And then he ultimately was forced to revise his own extension back down to August 31st, which is still several months ahead of the original deadline imposed by the Trump agreement. And in the weeks leading up to Sunday, the Taliban suddenly started making unprecedented gains across the country. It was almost, it, to me, I was seeing flashbacks of when Obama quickly pulled us out of Iraq and then ISIS suddenly swooped in and began taking territory left and right. And they were on the gate, at, they were at the gates of Baghdad. They were on the verge of taking Baghdad before, of course, to his credit, I suppose, he sent a surge of troops, Obama sent a surge of troops back into Iraq to push them back and they managed to protect Baghdad. And then, of course, under the Trump administration, ISIS was completely crushed and Iraq is now currently in a somewhat stable situation. Or I guess you could call it a draw, considering how many years we invested in that country. And I imagine it might be the same here. I was thinking, okay, they're gaining ground, but presumably another surge might help, you know, push them back out of Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan. But that is not what happened. On Sunday, a perfectly normal day for me, I'm always going to remember this. I think we can all remember where we were on Sunday, August the 15th, 2021. I was uh, just, I ran some errands earlier that day, and I was actually just chilling in my apartment playing some video games, you know, just having a good time. And then suddenly a group chat I'm in with some friends from college um, sent screenshots from, uh, from Twitter of a bunch of hashtags that were trending on that day. And I, I, of course, I had heard the news that Afghanistan was not going well, but the abundance of hashtags, I actually went to Twitter and screenshotted two screenshots worth of this. Some of the hashtags that were trending. Hashtag Biden is a laughingstock. Hashtag, where is Biden? Hashtag, impeach Biden now. And I was so confused. One of them in the group chat said, oh, wow, Biden really effed up this whole Afghanistan thing, huh? And I'm like, what is it? Is it getting worse? What happened? And of all the things, I ended up going to Wikipedia's homepage because they actually have an in the news section at the top right of their homepage. And it says, in the news, the fall of Kabul has taken place as the Taliban seizes control of the government. And I just blinked a couple <laughs> times. I'm like, oh my God, are you serious? And I checked and sure enough, on Sunday, August 15th, 2021, less than 96 hours ago, as of the time of this recording, the Taliban did storm the gates of the capital city of Kabul. The president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, fled the country. His location, I think at this time, is undisclosed, but he's either in the neighboring country of Uzbekistan or the other neighboring country of Tajikistan. But he fled the country as they were entering the city, which that is really, that's the symbolic collapse. That's the moment you know, yeah, the government is gone, the American Western-backed government, the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan has collapsed. The Taliban seized control and have redeclared the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. There's videos of them roaming around in the presidential palace. Uh, of course, they're storming the street. They're walking around the streets with their you know, RPGs and AK-47s and all that fun stuff, doing what insurgents do best. And this almost immediately and rightfully started drawing comparisons to the fall of Saigon in 1975 which I remember this, and this is where this all is, means so much to me. This is so important to me growing up under the shadow of 9-11. It's one of the 
oldest memories I have, very, very faint recollections. I was seven that day of the terrorist attacks. And as a kid, ultimately understanding, because uh, some of my best friends from my hometown, their father was in uh, the Navy and actually did get deployed back. I don't remember if it was Iraq or Afghanistan, but it was one of the two. And I just kind of came to the understanding as a kid, yeah, some very bad people did some very bad things to us, so we have to go over there and we have to take our revenge. So I always understood this war was just a war of revenge for 9-11, just as you know, we discussed the previous episode, World War II was the war of revenge for Pearl Harbor. That quickly became something else. And just like that, this too became something else, that the war in Afghanistan, ostensibly, we went there to hunt down bin Laden and kill bin Laden and destroy al-Qaeda. And then Iraq got thrown into the mix for kind of no reason. And of course, looking back now, we know, okay, Bush Jr. kind of did that to avenge his father's failure because he felt his father failed to overthrow Saddam Hussein the first time in the Gulf War. And he thought, oh, if I can do this, then I'll be greater than my father. And even Afghanistan, you know, I remember, of course, the night that they announced bin Laden had been killed. They, he had found... They had found him and killed him in a compound in Pakistan. So I remember thinking to myself, again, as a high school kid, so what did I know? But the moment I saw that news, I'm like, okay, we need to get out of Afghanistan immediately. This is like a SWAT team kicking down the door of a house and occupying the house for 10 years, only to find that the suspect they were looking for was in the next door house. And then choosing to stay in that same house for another 10 years. It just mm -hmm. made no sense to me. We should not have been there. I mean, clearly, yeah, you could argue the... It was a haven for terrorists, but at the end of the day, when the guy you're looking for was in another country, shouldn't you be turning all the scrutiny to that country? Just a thought. After Osama bin Laden was killed, we reduced our troops in Afghanistan. We had technically ended the mission in December of 2014. So since December of 2014, we've just kind of been lingering there, putting off the inevitable because it was inevitable that we were going to leave. Almost, almost like a, a proxy colony kind of situation, mm -hmm. but not quite. But then to tie this back to Vietnam, I remember, you know, as a kid growing up being taught American history and how America, from its glorious founding and the revolution to all the way through the tough times of the Civil War and certainly being the champions of the World Wars, this is how Vietnam stuck in my mind. They told me that they said, Eric, all you need to know about Vietnam is it was the first war America ever lost. And as a little kid, I'm just like, wow, our, our country finally lost a war after all that time. We had such a, an unbroken track record, you know, the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, the Korean War. And then we finally lost, objectively completely lost. You could argue the Korean War was kind of a draw, more or less, but the Vietnam War was an indisputable failure. We then bounced back with the Gulf War, which we definitely won. And now, I can't help but think, looking at the contrast now, where we are in the 21st century, it's no longer teaching, okay, America won every single war except for one. Now, post 9-11, it really is, which war has America won in the last 20 years? How do you define winning? Exactly. <laughs> but I mean, so certainly you, you cannot argue, there, nobody can argue that this was anything but a loss when you see these images out of Afghanistan, that we overthrew the Taliban when we went in 2001, and now 20 years later, they are right back in charge. And the scenes, the videos, we'll post links in the description, guys, believe me, because I mean, these are videos you have to see. We obviously can't show these because we're an audio only podcast, but the footage of hundreds and hundreds of Afghan civilians surrounding an Air Force, an American Air Force jet that is taking off on the runway. Some of them clinging to the fuselage because they are so desperate. They, they, they're trying to stop the plane. They want to get on. And then sure enough, they, I remember seeing the reports that uh, after that first day, I think that was the 16th, the day after, uh, reports that five civilians were killed at the airport. And it wasn't confirmed if they had been trampled in like a mass stampede or if they'd been shot by American troops trying to keep them back. The deaths were unconfirmed. I remember thinking to myself, because I had seen that video of them clinging on the plane, I'm like, you know, it would be really crazy if it had been a couple of those guys hanging onto the plane. 
even as it took off. And sure enough, a video from The Sun confirms that that is exactly what happened. At least three Afghan civilians could be seen. Just tiny little specks in the air as the plane is taking off, climbing, obviously reaching altitude of hundreds and hundreds of feet. You could see them falling from the planes straight down to the ground. And then a Twitter, at least one picture on Twitter showed that at least one of those bodies did land on a roof somewhere in the city. That, for me, immediately invoked imagery of 9-11. I immediately thought back to those images of people jumping from the towers because they decided that would be preferable to burning alive, which you can definitely argue is an understandable position. Obviously, I was not alive for Vietnam. Those of us in this generation who grew up under the shadow of 9-11 and were defined by this war, and as we said previously, some, a handful of Zoomers, Generation Z members who serve in the military, who are over fighting in Afghanistan or were prior to all this, we're fighting in a war that was older than they were. So you can imagine how it feels for those of them especially, but also for us who were born before the war happened, but the war has largely defined our lives and certainly our adulthood. We've always been anti-war, anti-foreign intervention here at The Right Take. That is the correct, objectively correct stance to take, especially after decades of, of this and Iraq and Libya and Syria. It had to come to an end. And I remember thinking to myself, Jacob and I were talking about this off the air the other day, Biden could have kept us in Afghanistan if he really wanted to. If he really wanted to stick it to Trump and continue the globalist agenda of nonstop intervention that depletes our resources in quagmires in the Middle East while we have our own problems at home, he could have done that. He totally could have done that. But you were saying, Jacob, to his credit, he ultimately did decide to keep to that and bring them home. I was prepared to say, you know what? On the day this ends, August 31st, September 11th, whenever, when the boys finally come back home, I would be prepared to give Biden just that much credit. But now you can't even do that. Like we can't even, he does not deserve any credit for this. This is a complete failure that rightfully so from all across the political spectrum within his own party in Congress, senators and members of the house, Democrats, and certainly the media are calling him out for this. This is a complete failure. This is arguably even worse than Saigon. One person who agrees with that assessment is none other than Larry Chambers, 92 years old, he's still around a veteran of the Vietnam War who was the commander of the USS Midway, the aircraft carrier, during Operation Frequent Wind, which was the codename for the evacuation of Vietnam as the, as the capital city of Saigon was about to collapse. He said, this is from the Air Force Times, to be perfectly honest with you, what is happening now is worse than what happened in Vietnam. We tried to get out as many people who worked with us as we could, he said in reference to Operation Frequent Wind. Did we do a good job? Who knows? I do not know what the Taliban is going to do, but whatever it is, it is not going to be pretty. In Afghanistan, we are abandoning the folks who supported us while we were there. So this guy who was on the front lines, who most infamously, he gave the command, and there are famous images of this from the Fall of Saigon, he gave the command for them to push South Vietnamese military helicopters off of the deck of the aircraft carrier into the ocean as they had, after they had finished evacuating people onto the aircraft carrier, push them off into the ocean so that the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese forces would not have access to them. You know, destroy the equipment. Don't let them get it. He gave that order. He was in the middle of all of this. He saw it all firsthand. And he's able to determine just from the outside looking in as a spectator like the rest of us to what's going on in Afghanistan, he says Afghanistan is even worse than what happened in Vietnam. You can certainly argue, again, certainly Afghanistan was slightly longer then Vietnam, it's cost us even more money than Vietnam. Again, over $2 trillion spent in that war alone. That's not even taking into account, I think, another $2 trillion spent in Iraq around the same time. This is an objective failure in every way possible. But leave it to the Biden administration to continue defending this, to do what they do best. And they're doubling down. This is Secretary of State Anthony Blinken 
being grilled about this but on CNN being grilled by Jake Tapper. This is not just about the overall idea of leaving Afghanistan. This is about leaving hastily and ineptly. Secretary Blinken, how did President Biden get this so wrong? Jake, first, let's put this in context. Uh, and as we discussed before, we were in Afghanistan for one overriding purpose, uh, to deal with the folks who attacked us on 9-11. That's why we went there 20 years ago. Uh, and over those 20 years, uh, we brought bin Laden to justice. Uh, we vastly diminished the threat posed by al-Qaeda in Afghanistan to the United States to the point where it's not capable of conducting such an attack again from Afghanistan. We're going to keep in place in the region the capacity to see if any reemergence of a terrorist threat and to be able to deal with it. Uh, and on the terms that we went into Afghanistan in the first place, we've succeeded in achieving our objectives. This is not just a... No, 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 Anthony. No, 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 no. You didn't succeed, okay? The killing of bin Laden took place 10 years ago under Biden's old boss, Barack Obama. To his credit, the, the one really good thing he did, and I do think that was probably the arguably the last moment of national unity in the United States, was May the 1st, 2011, when everybody was celebrating as one country the death of the boogeyman of the United States for 10 years. Obama did that. And according to reports from inside the Obama White House, the number one opponent of the move to go in there, there were people in the Obama camp arguing against invading that compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. The number one advocate for not going in was Joseph Biden. So your boss, your current boss, Anthony, got it wrong on that one. Second, the decimation of Al-Qaeda, once again, that took place over the course of, towards the end of Obama's presidency and certainly throughout Trump's presidency. You guys didn't decimate Al-Qaeda. You didn't get bin Laden. You didn't defeat ISIS. You have no victories to claim here. You can refer back to previous administrations all you want. Again, it's strange enough that they're, I mean, they're not only taking credit for what Trump did, but they're taking credit for what Obama did. You guys in this current time frame, in the year 2021, have failed miserably. And here's the proof. Here's the proof that Biden truly is the one who failed here with regards to Afghanistan specifically and nothing else. These are words that will definitely haunt him for the rest of his life. This is Joe Biden on July 8th. The jury is still out, but the likelihood there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. Highly <laughs> unlikely. Well, I would just like to say that it sh Americans should have set their expectations when we invaded Afghanistan. It should have been understood from the very beginning that we were not going to eradicate the Taliban. And I think there was, there was so much confusion when it happened. Americans are used to, we're attacked by a foreign enemy, by a country. We go kick that country's butt. We come back home. That was what we did with Japan. And that was what we thought we were going to do with Afghanistan. In our mind, I don't even think most Americans, because I remember at the time, I was old enough to remember kind of what people were saying about at the time. I don't think the average civilian knew the nuance between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And, you know, they didn't even know that Al-Qaeda were Arabs. They thought that Al-Qaeda was Afghans. They thought that Taliban and, Afghan and uh, Al-Qaeda were one and the same. They, they didn't understand the difference. And so in their minds, we're going to go, we're declaring war on Afghanistan, which was run by the Taliban. So we're going to, you know, knock down their government and then set up a puppet government in its place. And that's going to rule just like Japan did. Because that's what we did in Japan. We nation built in Japan and it worked. We nation built in South Korea and it worked in Germany and it worked. And that was the mentality. It should have been made very clear to Americans from the start that we weren't at war with the Taliban. We knocked the Taliban out because they wouldn't give us Osama bin Laden. 
But once we got Osama bin Laden, it should have been made clear, okay, we're done with the Taliban. If they want Afghanistan, they can have it as long as they don't harbor terrorists. And because that was not made clear to the American people, the American people weren't, they weren't made to understand that we weren't at war with the Taliban. Then that's why there's a lot of, a lot of confusion and misunderstanding. And that's why then you have Biden saying, oh no, it's, it's a very, it's a far-fetched scenario that the Taliban would take over. It's, it's really not when you consider how widespread popular Islamic extremism is in the Middle East and Afghanistan in particular. Especially after 20 years of the Americans basically occupying that country. Of yeah, course. Afghans are tired of our puppet government there. And understandably so. Again, I love America, obviously. I mean, this is not criticism of the troops. This isn't criticizing American ideals or anything. But to say that, you know, we're still that to say that it's understandable why we are the bad guys to them. From their perspective, just like the Vietnamese in Vietnam, it's understandable that they want to run their country how they want to run their country. If it turns out that a lot of those troops we train in their Afghan military are actually sympathetic to the Taliban, then that's, you know, it's just a product of the 20 years through which they had to put up with us, which is why it made even less sense for us to do what we did. Biden boasted about having, we've trained 300,000 Afghan soldiers to be a fighting force you know, and we've given them, and we gave them, that's the worst thing. We gave them so much equipment. We gave them our weapons. We gave them our vehicles. We gave them money. And how much of that has now been dumped into the hands of the Taliban, which now runs the entire country and runs that force that we trained. We, they are now in a better position 20 years after 9-11 than they were prior to 9-11. Taliban now controls the whole country again, and they have a stockpile of American treasure, weapons of war to use, maybe against us in the future. Who knows? Maybe, I mean, you think if they wanted to be smart actors on the international stage, they wouldn't retaliate. Like that's what people are saying that, you know, with the hostages, there's currently thousands of American citizens still in Afghanistan right now. The Kabul airport, the Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul has been briefly shut down and is being guarded by Taliban forces. So realistically, you know, again, like the Iranians, like the Iran hostage crisis, if they were smart, they would not just start killing Americans left and right because they know that would be surefire retaliation. But they are, you better believe they're not just going to stow those weapons away somewhere. They're going to use them. What are they going to use them for? Your guess is as good as mine. But in just 11 days, question mark, was from, I think, when the Taliban first started their offensive up to when they took Kabul, all the progress on you know, progress, quote unquote, under Bush and Obama, and then the real progress, the actual progress to crush Islamic terrorism across the Middle East and bring stability to the region that was accomplished under the four years of President Trump and his diplomacy, all of that, all of that has just been wiped out in less than two weeks. And there is nobody to blame for that but Joe Biden. According to a Brown University study in 2019, we spent a total of $978 billion on Afghanistan between 2001 and 2019. That's more than a year's budget of our military spending. We typically spend about $750 billion a year on the military. We spend $978 billion on Afghanistan. I mean, we could have pulled out in 2002, 2003, and would have had the same result. The Taliban would have taken back over, and it would have been – I mean, arguably, if we pulled out in 2002, the Taliban was so weakened at that point, it would have taken them several years to take back over the country, and then they arguably wouldn't have been able to do it. I mean, at that point, the Afghan government was probably in a better position to defend the country than they are today, or they were after they just got knocked out. But um, to, to this point, I mean, this is um, Biden will argue, and he's been arguing 
that events moved quicker than they expected because like you mentioned it was about a six-day offensive that the taliban waged because at the beginning of august i was looking back at the timeline just yesterday and at the beginning of august the taliban did not control a single regional capital and then they conquered the entire country and took over kabul within two weeks it's understandable that the biden administration didn't have evacuation plans set up at the beginning of august but when they took their first regional capitals, they should have started the evacuation process immediately. They should have gotten in those 4,000 troops a week ago. It was, it was like two weeks ago when they took their first regional capitals. We should have sent troops in and started the evacuation process at that time. And if we had done that, the, you know, the American citizens would have already been out by the time Kabul fell. And of course, Biden himself, like Blinken, is doubling down on, what his, on his handling of this. And his suggestion of how to fix it now that it's really getting out of control is even more astounding. This is from an interview he just gave with George Stephanopoulos on ABC News. But we've all seen the pictures. We've seen those hundreds of people packed into a C-17. We've seen Afghans falling. That was four days ago, five days ago. What did you think when you first saw those pictures? What I thought was we're, we have to gain control of this. We have to move this more quickly. We have to move in a way in which we can take control of that airport. And we did. So you don't think this could have been handled, this actually could have been handled better in any way? No mistakes? No, I, I, I don't think it could have been handled in a way that there, we, we're going to go back in hindsight and look, but the idea that somehow there's a way to have gotten out without chaos ensuing, I don't know how that happens. So, okay. So your first thought when you see a plane, an American Air Force aircraft, taking off with people clinging to the fuselage so hard that they don't fall off until hundreds of feet in the air. Your first thought is, we need to take control of the situation. You should, you should have been in control of the situation already. What are you talking about? I will give Biden credit. He is taking the, this might be part of his playbook too, but he is kind of taking a page out of Trump's playbook. You know how Trump never apologizes for anything. It doesn't Trump. matter how bad he screws up. He will not apologize or admit guilt or fault in anything. And this is a perfect example of that. Like you, you just, you just screwed up big time and you're, you're, call and it's like no i didn't make a single mistake i'd do the same thing over again but even then to say like okay clearly the plan is that well oh, we need to evacuate even faster we need to evacuate even faster like is that going to help so that now six afghans will fall from a flying plane instead of three like is that is that what you're going for here joe it's just the fact that you're not in control from the beginning because like like jacob said you should have been on top of this and there are plenty of people speaking out people on msnbc and others who said they were advising the administration that this was going to happen for months on end national security experts military you know veterans and whatnot saying this is very likely to happen you should take this seriously the biden administration just said nah it'll be fine like you know don't worry about it and now that it's happening you suddenly say we need to get control that's like saying we need to get control of ev evacuating people out of this building before it collapses as the building is collapsing it's already done it's already over what are you going to do at this point it's just and and the part especially when he says there's no way there was going to be an evacuation without it being messy no 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 there was at this point there was no way this was going to end without the taliban taking over that's the correct thing to say he should have been willing to acknowledge yeah that they were probably always were going to come sweeping back into power but to say there was no way this was going to be done without there being a mess that is just you know setting yourself up for defeat right then and that's not a good look for the american people again this refers me back this recalls back to uh during one of the debates he had with trump where trump 
understandably kind of took the approach of, you know, America's strong, America's tough. We'll get through this. He was referring to the coronavirus. And he said, Americans are learning how to live with it. You know, we're tough, resilient people. And Biden is like, learning to live with it. How about we're learning how to die with it, man? Like, you know, he's just throwing in this ultra pessimistic take that, uh, again, I, I, you can see why black pillars like this guy. But besides them, you think the American people like hearing this from their commander in chief that, oh, it's going to be a failure anyway. We're going to lose no matter what. Again, you can't take advantage of the fact that most Americans don't understand the situation and just wanted the war to end one way or another. You can't take advantage of, the, of that fact to turn around and say, oh, forget about the failure. It was going to fail anyway. I think that's his calculation. He understands. And I, I can't really disagree with that assessment because in three months, four months, six months, how many Americans are going to care? Americans are going to care if we have hundreds of thousands of Afghan refugees flooding our country, being flown in by the U.S. military. That will cause Americans to care. But if it's not numbers that high, I think most Americans will kind of view this as a failure of Biden, but they'll move on. They'll focus on domestic issues. But the, you mentioned that he should have said it was inevitable that the Taliban, you can't really end this without the, out the Taliban taking over. I don't think they, I think he genuinely thought that that wasn't going to happen as his interview in July showed. I think they genuinely were so naive that they thought that this puppet government, that we had this corrupt puppet government. Oh, by the way, the, um, the president of Afghanistan, uh, what's his name? Ghani? Ghani? Ghani. Ghani, he allegedly took off with $169 million. <laughs> he, he, I wonder where that money came oh, they're, from. They're, they're sitting in this uh, personal stash where he's sitting uh, right now in Dubai. Yeah, he loaded up his plane and a bunch of cars with cash, and he couldn't take it all. So he'll have to leave, had to leave some of it behind. But he, he fled the country, so now they're wanting, uh, uh, what's the name, Interpol. Uh, the Afghans are wanting <laughs> Interpol to arrest him. The Afghan uh, president in um uh, so not the Afghan, but the Afghan ambassador in Tajikistan took down his picture as soon as he fled the country. Like they were done with it. They were they wanted him, and they're the ones calling for him to be arrested by Interpol. But this is these are the kind of people. These are the kind of leaders that we set up in Afghanistan. These are the kind of people that get elected when we let a country like Afghanistan elect their leaders. It, it's it's a tribal primitive society. They need to be ruled by an iron fist, preferably by an Islamic dictatorship that understands the cultural needs of the people. And so it should have been understandable that they were going to be taken over by the Taliban. And for decades, for two decades now, Americans have been living in denial of that. It's like, well, let's just keep pouring more money into it. Let's keep propping up their government. Under Obama, we spent like $200 billion on roads and bridges and infrastructure and schools to try to thinking that, okay, if we improve the quality of life, if we try to bring these people in the 21st century, they'll be appreciative and they'll support this puppet government that we set up. Let's just keep handing out your know, pocket constitutions and you know teaching them about Madisonian democracy. And I think Breitbart's John Nolte said it very well. But at the end of the day, if the people of this country really want to choose to live in the 7th century instead of the 21st century, that's their choice. Mm -hmm. Who are we to tell them that, you know, oh, no, your way is backwards. You know, it's it's at the, especially when they are so far away. If this was a country right on our southern border and relevant to us, sure, that'd be one thing. But this is on the opposite side of the world. And again, you take 9-11 out of the equation. We have other than oil, other than the need for oil, which, again, Trump was working on resolving that, too, making us energy independent. But, of course, the Biden regime completely torpedoed that. And now we're back to being dependent on foreign oil from a region of the world like the Middle East, which is now way more volatile as a result of Biden's failures. And a lot of people would make the argument against pulling out of Afghanistan saying, well, who's going to fill that void? What country is going to fill that void? China is going to fill that void. Well, Whichever country wants to fill that void, I say let them have it at this point. Afghanistan shares a border with China. 
they, they share a small sliver of a border with China. That'd be like, okay, well, if, if Russia pulls out, if the Soviet Union pulls out of Cuba, who's going to fill that void? Well, no, the United States is going to fill that. Well, Cuba is in our back door. It's in our, right in our backyard. We should be filling that void. It's natural. Exactly. Yeah. But this is the, one of the common, some of the comments on the right, a lot of the, the uh, vitriol you see from Fox News and right-wing commentators, especially National Review, which is absolutely abysmal, is criticizing the Taliban takeover and the fact that we allow the Taliban to take over. But under... President Trump, he negotiated with the Taliban. Secretary of State Pompeo went over there and actually sat down with the Taliban and they formed, they hammered out this withdrawal deal with the Taliban, not with the government of Afghanistan, but with the Taliban leaders. And now you have Nikki Haley. She's basically the, the princes of neoconservatism, the new, the new darling princes of, neo, of neocons. The high-heeled hawk. That's a good one. That's a good one. So she, she tweeted, to have our generals say that they are depending on diplomacy with the Taliban is an unbelievable scenario. Negotiating with the Taliban is like dealing with the devil. Hello, the man you worked for as ambassador to the United Nations negotiated with the Taliban. How tone deaf can you possibly be? But Nikki Haley is one of these people who was convinced that if she just kept her mouth shut, if she didn't show all her neocon cards, she worked with the Trump administration, she would still stay in good favor with the Trump base and she would have her shot in 2024. And then she tweets something like this. It's like, okay, well, mask off. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we negotiated with the Taliban because the Taliban is the rightful government of Afghanistan, not these puppets that we've been setting up for 20 years. Young America's Foundation was another one. They tweeted, they did a video actually a while ago before the fall of Kabul. They had a video from one of their speeches with Dan Crenshaw basically saying, you know, here's why pulling out of Afghanistan was a bad idea. Libtards owned or whatever. And yeah, these the, and the tweet got it got ratioed into oblivion back then. It was getting ratioed for being interventionist neocon war hawk nonsense. And now after Afghanistan, Yaf is like re-sharing that saying, oh, see, we were right. And they're getting ratioed mm -hmm. again. These losers on the right think that we're going to pull back to the Bush era, that we're going to reinvigorate the Bush era. That, that somehow, Trump was a mistake, basically. They, what they want is basically a Crenshaw-Haley ticket or a Haley-Crenshaw ticket in 2024. Uh, and re you know invade they want they basically want the 82nd airborne division to accompany a pride parade down the streets of Tehran <laughs> that's that's their vision of for America's military future the the pride flags the the transgender flags and the uh, BLM flags are the last flags to come down off of the embassy yeah Kabul. well it's funny there I saw a video yesterday on YouTube in Jamaica the Jamaicans were protesting the rainbow flag on the US embassy and they're pointing out that that's a violation of the Geneva Convention because according to the Geneva Convention only the national flag of the embassy is allowed to fly and they're like you're out there this is an abomination they're uh, they're bringing this is cultural imperialism and one of them said the people of the United States don't even support this and I was like <laughs> yeah yeah right on right on but yeah referring back to uh, Biden's bet that the uh, that the American people won't care about this you're definitely right in uh, in predicting that this will of course fade out of the news cycle in a few months although just even even from the history books alone, this absolutely is going to stand as one of his biggest, the biggest moments of his presidency and for all the wrong reasons. Just like I think certainly the comparisons are accurate. You look back at Gerald Ford, Gerald Ford, who, of course, assumed the presidency after Nixon resigned. He the three big things that defined his presidency were, of course, the pardoning of Richard Nixon, the fall of Saigon, you know, the end of what was at the time America's longest war in a sudden reversal from the stability created by his predecessor, the fall of the capital city of the nation they fought to defend. And coupled with that. A terrible economy with rising inflation. Oh, sounds a little similar, right? Of a sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? So I think this absolutely is a huge blunder, especially because this reflects poorly on his claims from the beginning. Oh, I'm going to bring the adults back to Washington. The adults will be back in charge. I know what I'm doing. I've been in the Senate for all 50 years. And this completely just torpedoes that whole narrative. This is from, and when you see these 
articles from mainstream publications. You always got to stop to look at who the author is to see, okay, is this actually representative of what they think? Or is this one of their token conservatives? You know, at the Washington Post, if it's from uh, Mark Thiessen, you know, who's actually a good, like, solid conservative at the Washington Post. He's one of the few good ones. You know, that's that's one thing. If you go to The Hill and you see an article by Joe Concha, you know, he, he's good too. But obviously, he doesn't represent the majority of The Hill. CNN headline. Quote, Joe Biden is facing a crisis of competence. That's from CNN. Who wrote this CNN headline? Chris Caliza, the host of one of their shows, The Point. He's the CNN editor at large. He's BFFs with Brian Stelter, basically. He wrote this headline, basically saying that, of course, Afghanistan, Biden came in saying he was going to be competent. He was going to be competent where Trump was incompetent. And Afghanistan will be a perfect example of this. Then he botches Afghanistan. Kaliza's like, well, that just kind of shatters the whole competency narrative. On top of, this is crucial, Kaliza, this is CNN, Chris Kaliza, mentioning that's on top of other things where he's been proving wrong. You know, when Biden announced that, you know, if you're vaccinated, you no longer have to wear a mask. That was a great moment. You know, on July 4th, he declared very, very, you know, over in an over-the-top, grandiose fashion, we could declare our independence from this virus. And now, oops, the CDC says, never mind, vaccines don't work. Even if you're vaccinated, you have to wear a mask again. That was a reversal. And the, the India variant slash Delta variant, uh, even though you can't really blame Biden on that, still inevitably the rise of this new variant that seems to be locking everything down again is further proof that Biden doesn't really have it under control. Even the border, even CNN's Chris Caliza acknowledges the crisis on the border, where once again, Alejandro Mayorkas, you know, running out, running defense for Biden, keeps saying, well, the Trump administration dismantled everything we had in place, which basically means, no, they completely shut down your free system of importing thousands of new voters. They shut down the refugee system. They shut down illegal immigration. They lowered legal immigration to its lowest levels ever. They did what they were elected to do. They succeeded in defending America's borders. You didn't like that, so now you're running around claiming they're like, oh, that they dismantled what we were doing. That does not excuse, as Kaliza notes, that still doesn't excuse what is objectively a crisis at the southern border, which up to this point, prior to Sunday, the border was the one issue on which Biden's poll numbers were consistently the lowest. Now, going back to the, the bet with whether or not people will pay attention, Biden's approval ratings are taking a huge drop all across the board. His average from Real Clear Politics and other aggregates is now below 50% for the first time in his presidency. It's the lowest it's ever been. His disapproval rating in the latest Reuters poll, his approval rating in the latest Reuters poll is just 46%. And in particular, he's tanking among independent voters who disapprove of him 48%. This is down from his immediate post-inauguration numbers, 53% approval, 36% disapproval. So this clearly is going to stick with him for a while. It's certainly going to be a stain on his historical record forever as the first major foreign policy move of his presidency. Not a victory or a loss. This is just the first big foreign policy thing to have foreign policy development on his watch. And it was easily, as former President Trump said in a recent interview, you could argue this is the single greatest foreign policy blunder in American history, even worse than Saigon. And if, if everything was going peachy on the domestic front, like if the economy was booming, I think it would be much, much easier for Americans to kind of put this in the rearview mirror. But because that's not going to happen, inflation isn't going anywhere. Inflation is not going to go down. The Fed admitted it's going to get worse. Yeah, yeah, and it's going to actually probably be worse in 2022 as well. So with that going on, the quality of life is not going to go up in the United States. And this right here is just going to be like a little icing on the cake for people to remember. Oh, yeah, not only this, but we were also humiliated on the international stage. But at least his tweets are not mean anymore, right? Right, right. That's, that's what's important. That's what people voted for. And just like that, the saga of the war that has defined an entire generation and a half, has defined most of our lives, is coming to an end. The worst part, you got to keep in mind, 
is that it's still not over yet. The withdrawal was set for August 31st. This is August 19th at the time of this recording. We still have over 10 days left to go. As the last 11 days of the Taliban offensive has proven, anything can change. And, and I just want to say on a very personal note that this, for everything we have said at the right take about how we should put America first, and we should, and care about our citizens first, and bring the boys back home, and stop with these foreign wars that have killed thousands of our troops. We spent over $2 trillion, 20 years, and lost over 2,400 American troops, in addition to thousands of other troops in the alliance from the UK and other uh, allied nations. This really is a sad moment also for lots of the Afghan people. Of course, it seems, again, as we said, a lot of the population does support the Taliban. That is true. But there are still thousands of Afghan citizens who don't support the Taliban, who assisted us in this war effort. They were interpreters. They were guides. Some of them fought alongside us. And those are the people who are storming the airports. Those are the people crowding onto the walkways. Those are the people hanging onto a plane as it takes off. And my heart breaks for those people, just like it breaks for the families of all the troops who died. It breaks for all the, the family members of 9-11 who now look at this and see 20 years later, 20 years when, after we embarked on our mission to avenge those who died in the biggest terrorist attack in human history, the greatest attack on our nation since Pearl Harbor. They look at this and see 20 years, 2 trillion, 2400 later. For nothing. For nothing. This was all for nothing. We are right back to square one. It's like the French Revolution. We're right back to where we started before that trigger was pulled. I don't want to believe that those 2400 troops died for nothing and that those trillions and those years and this the lifespan of a generation and a half were wasted. But that's what it looks like right now. And even aside from all the domestic issues we've talked about, all the, the cultural struggles and the, the soft civil war type conflicts going on in our nation right now, this is a whole new level that harkens back. It harkens back to a time when things were simpler, when our only enemies were these foreigners in a distant land who flew some planes into our buildings 20 years ago, and we had to retaliate. Things were simpler back then. Back then, we could unite as a nation. As Jacob said, if the domestic issues weren't here, if we had a stable economy and a functioning society that wasn't at each other's throats, we could move on from this. We could recover from this embarrassing and historical failure. But things are worse than ever right now. And this is the last thing we needed. Again, even as the conclusion to a saga that we wanted to end, we wanted this war to come to an end more than anything else, there's no sense of relief there's no sense of, oh, it's finally over. It's just, I feel, if nothing else, just kind of a nothingness, just an emptiness that all that time, all that effort, blood, sweat, tears, and treasure, gone for nothing. Knowing that this also diminishes our standing on the international stage, we're already a declining superpower. We've already been. We were the world hegemon, the undisputed dominant nation in the world after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But now, certainly with China making moves, and China very well may make moves into Afghanistan. And best of luck to them, I guess. It, it, you know, the Brits couldn't do it. The Soviet Union couldn't do it. I believe there is a reason. There's many reasons that we witnessed, among others. There are many reasons why I do believe the last superpower to successfully invade and conquer Afghanistan was the Mongol Empire. As bad as things are, there was once a time where 
we went into this knowing we could win, believing we could win. And even if that belief was misguided, even if we never were going to win from the beginning, we as a nation still believed it. We united around the flag. We united around the anthem. And we believed that we could do it and that we were doing the right thing. We try, I try at least, to dispense white pills here on the right take. Good news. That gives you hope for the future, as bad as things may be. There are no white pills to come out of news over, uh, to come out of the news cycle over the last week alone, the last few days. Maybe that'll change. Who knows? New developments will happen. You know, the results of the Arizona audit are going to come out soon. You know, something may happen there. Who knows? But for right now, I guess just say a prayer for everybody involved here. Say a prayer for the Afghan civilians who do fear for their lives. Say a prayer for the families of the troops who lost their lives. For the families of 9-11 victims who understandably now don't probably don't feel closure after this. And we can just only pray that things get better for our nation before it's too late. That is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, stay up to date with the latest content from The Right Take at our website, righttakepodcast.com. All of our social media platforms and podcast platforms, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And if you want to support what we do here at the show, righttakepodcast.com slash support. Until next week, guys.